welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. Today is January 3rd, and we're going to be reading uh, from Genesis 3. The format for this show, if you remember, is uh, where I'm going to read one chapter a day. So today we're going to read Genesis 3, and then we're going to walk through key thoughts and ideas and even theology very briefly from Genesis 3. Uh, The goal of this podcast is to get you into the Word 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's take a look at what Genesis 3 has to say now. Here's the reading of God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, uh, guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the reading of God's holy word. Well, as we look at this chapter from Genesis 3.1 to Genesis 3.24, the, the section of scripture that we just read, what we see in the context is the sudden and unexplained arrival of a cunning serpent presents a challenge of immense importance to the human couple. Their choice is to disregard God's instructions as an act of willful rebellion that has terrible consequences on the whole of creation. Now, as a result, God's creation is thrown into disorder with chaotic effects that result from the disruption of all the harmonious relationships that God had previously established. Now, the speaking serpent is introduced into the Genesis story with nothing said about its origin other than it's one of the beasts of the field. The serpent's question may sound innocent, but it deliberately misquotes God as saying, the couple must not eat of any tree in the garden. And the subtlety of the serpent's approach to the woman is captured captured by the narrator of Genesis. And it's noteworthy here that the serpent is deliberate in avoiding God's personal name, Yahweh, or Lord, when he addresses the woman. And here is another hint that his presence, Satan's presence, the snake's presence in the garden presents a threat. Although his words appear deceptively innocent, his subsequent contradiction of God leaves no doubt about his motive or even his purpose. Now, the text, to be clear, does not indicate when or how the serpent became evil. As the narrative proceeds, it becomes clear that the, that more than a simple snake is at work here, that evil an evil power is using the snake, as we see in verse 15. As indicated by God's declaration that he had made everything that he made was very good in Genesis 1.31, clearly evil entered the created world at some unknown point after God's work of creation was completed. Likewise, nothing in scripture suggests that the eternal existence of evil exists as we see in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Now, the woman's response in Genesis 3, 2 through 3, it echoes the divine instruction given in Genesis 2, 16 through 17 regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it even adds the comment, neither shall you touch it. These minor variations are possibly meant to convey, even at this stage, the woman views God's instruction as open to human modification. In verses 3 through 4 of our chapter today, the serpent now not only directly contradicts what the Lord has said, but he goes on to present the fruit of the tree as something worth obtaining by eating it. The couple will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the irony here is the serpent's remarks should not be overlooked. The couple, unlike the serpent, has been made in the image and likeness of God, as we see in Genesis 1, 26-27. And in this way, they're already like God. Being in the image of God, they are expected to exercise authority over all the beasts of the field, and this includes serpents. 
But by obeying the serpent, we need to understand they betray their trust in the Lord. This is not merely an act of disobedience. It is an act of treachery. Those who are meant to govern the earth on God's behalf instead rebel against their divine king and obey one of his creatures. You will not surely die. It means here that that sometimes it's claimed that the serpent is correct when he says these things to the couple, for they do not die. You know, Adam lives to be 930 years, as we'll see in Genesis 5.5. Further, their eyes are opened in verse 7 of this chapter. And the Lord acknowledges in Genesis 3.22 that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And yet the serpent speaks half-truths, promising much but delivering little. Their eyes are indeed opened, and they come to know something, but it's only that they're naked. They know good and evil by experience, but their sense of guilt makes them afraid to meet God, and they have become slaves to evil. And while they do not cease to exist physically, they are expelled from the garden sanctuary in the presence of God, and and in fact cut off from the source of life and the tree of life. They are in the realm of the dead. What they experience outside of Eden is not life as God intended, but spiritual death. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw what this means is like all the other trees in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was pleasant to the sight and good for food, as you see in Genesis 2.9. Now, the irony is somehow that the serpent has made the woman discontent with permitted trees, focusing her desire on this one. Its deadly appeal to her is in its ability to make one wise. But we need to understand, this is not wise according to the fear of the Lord. It is wise according to the standard of the world. And and she also gave some of this to her husband who was with her, Genesis 3, 6 says, which means that Adam was with her, that he knowingly ate what God had forbidden. And it indicates that Adam's sin was both an act of conscious rebellion against God and a failure to carry out his divinely ordained responsibility to guard and keep, as Genesis 2.16 says, both the garden and the woman that God had created as a helper fit for him, as Genesis 2.18 and Genesis 2.20 says. And the disastrous consequences of Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind at the very beginning of every sin, suffering, and pain, as well as physical and spiritual death for the human race. Some context, again, Genesis 3, 7 through 13. What we see here is eating the fruit transforms the couple, but not for the better. Now, now ashamed of their nakedness, they attempt to clothe themselves. Conscious of the Lord God's presence, they hide. And when confronted by God regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the man blames the woman who turns and blames the serpent. In Genesis 3, 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Both man and you are singular in in this Hebrew text. So God thus confronts Adam uh, first, holding him primarily responsible for what happened as the one who is the representative or head of the woman and and the wife relationship established before the fall, as we see in Genesis 2, 15 through 16. Here in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, the Lord is going to, and he does, address the serpent first. What we saw in Genesis 3, 1 declares the serpent more crafty. So now God declares the serpent more cursed. 
indicted for its part in tempting the woman, the serpent will be viewed with contempt from now on. This is conveyed both literally and figuratively by the serpent going on its belly and eating dust. Having deceived the woman, the serpent will have ongoing hostility with the woman, which is going to be perpetuated by their respective offspring. Now we come to Genesis 3.15. While many modern commentators interpret this as part of the curse as merely describing the natural hostility that exists between men and snakes, it has been traditionally understood as pointing forward to the death of the serpent by a future descendant of the woman. This interpretation fits well with the context that we're talking about today. This defeat is implied by the serpent's head being crushed, which is more serious than the offspring of Eve uh, being bruised in the heel. For this reason, verse 15 has been labeled the proto-evangelium, that is, the first announcement of the gospel. This interpretation requires that the serpent be viewed as more than just a mere snake, something which the narrative itself implies, given the serpent's ability to speak and the vile things that he says. And, and while the present chapter does not explicitly identify the serpent with Satan, such an identification is a legitimate inference and is clearly what the Apostle John is talking about in Revelation 12.9 and Revelation 20 to verse 2. Now, the motif of the offspring of the woman is picked up in Genesis 4.25 with the birth of Seth. And subsequently, the rest of Genesis is going to trace the single line of Seth's descendants, observing that it will eventually produce a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel in verse 15 of this chapter, Genesis 3. Now, some interpreters have suggested by saying he and his, the intended meaning is that of one particular offspring in view. And now within the larger biblical framework, this hope comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is clearly presented in the New Testament as overcoming Satan in Hebrews 2.14 uh, 1 John 3, 8, Matthew 12, 29, Mark 1, 24, Luke 10, 18, John 12, 31, uh, John 16, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and Colossians 2, 15, while at the same time being bruised. Now, in verse 16 of Genesis 3, what we see is, by way of punishing the woman for her sin of disobedience, God pronounces that she will suffer pain in the bearing of children. And this strikes at the very heart of the woman's distinctiveness. For she is the mother of all the living, verse 20 says. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, verse 16 says. And, and the words from the Lord indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between the husband and the wife that were ordained by God before the fall now have been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. And this takes the form of inornate desire on the part of the wife and domineering rule on the part of the husband. He, the, the Hebrew term here translated desire, it's rarely found in the Old Testament, but it appears again, as we'll see in Genesis 4-7 tomorrow in a statement that closely parallels verse 16. That is where the Lord says to Cain just before Cain's murder of his brother that sin's desire is for you to master Cain and that Cain must rule over it, it which he immediately fails to do by murdering his brother as we're going to see tomorrow in Genesis 4, 8. 
Similarly, the ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God will have disastrous consequences for their relationship. First, Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But second, Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful desire to rule over Eve. And thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage driven by their sinful behavior uh, of both rebellion against their respective God-given rules and responsibilities in marriage as we see and as we'll look at when we get to Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Now, God's punishment of the man involves his relationship with the very ground from which he was formed, Genesis 2, 5 through 7 says. And because he has eaten that which is prohibited to him, he will have to struggle to eat in the future. And given the abundance of food that God provided in the garden, this judgment reflects God's disfavor. Adam will no longer enjoy the garden's abundance, but will have to work the ground from which he was taken. And the punishment is not work itself, but rather the hardship, the frustration, meaning the pain that will accompany man's labor. And to say that the ground is cursed and will bring forth thorns and thistles, it indicates the abundant productivity that was seen in the garden will no longer be the case. Underlying this judgment is a disruption of the harmonious relationship that originally existed between human beings and nature. Genesis 3.19 further, the man's body will return to the ground, meaning it will die, which was not true of the original created order as we see in Romans 5.12. And for this reason, scripture looks forward to a time when nature will be set free from the consequences of human sin, meaning nature will no longer be an area of punishment, and it will finally have glorified human beings to manage it and bring out its full potential as we see in Romans 8.19-22. Now, what we see in Genesis 3, 20 through 21 is God's word of judgment on the serpent on woman and man are immediately followed by two observations that convey a sense of hope. First, the man names his wife Eve in verse 20, which means life giver. And second, God closed the couple in verse 21. And while this final action recognizes that the human couple is now ashamed of their nakedness, in the presence of God as a gesture, though it suggests that God still cares for his creatures. You see, because the Lord God provides garments to clothe Adam and Eve, thus requiring the death of an animal to cover their nakedness, many see here a parallel related to a system of animal sacrifices to atone for sin later instituted by God through the leadership of Moses in Israel and the eventual sacrificial death of Christ as an atonement for sin. Now, in Genesis 3, 22-24, the couple is expelled from the garden. God begins a sentence in verse 22 and then breaks off this curse, this sentence, without finishing it. From the man to live forever in a sinful condition is an unbearable thought, and God must waste no time in preventing it. And so our text says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. A tree of life then probably served in some way to confirm a person in his or her moral conduct. And according to Genesis 2:16, the man was put in the garden to work and to guard it. Outside the garden, the man will have to work the ground, but the task of keeping or guarding the garden is given to the cherubim we see in verse 24. And by allowing themselves to be manipulated by, uh, by the serpent, the couple failed to fulfill their priestly duties regarding guarding the garden. 
Consequently, their priestly status is removed from them as they are put out of the sanctuary. The place of the cherubim to the east of the garden is reflected in the tabernacle and the temple where the cherubim were an important component in the structure and the furnishings. Now, as we come to the end of our time together today, I want to leave you with a couple questions. First, I want you to notice how cunning Satan is at the beginning of this chapter. And I want you to note that because this is how cunning you need to understand false teaching is. False teachers use language in a very sophisticated way. And and they give you just enough, just enough, and it sounds good enough. But then notice what they say after they say the good things, after they say the, the even the right things. That's, that's the danger of false teaching. That is why we ourselves, as Proverbs 4.23 says, we need to guard our hearts with all due diligence. That's why we ourselves need to be in the word ourselves daily, reading it, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, uh, sitting under sound preaching of the word from a biblically qualified pastor, male pastor, and more. So the question is, in what ways have, have you been like, like we see in this story in Genesis 3? In what ways have you been seduced by false teaching? Write down that. And, and note it, because you know what? These are, these are important things to understand how you are tempted to be led astray so that you yourself can be on guard and have other people speaking into those areas in your life and getting help. But, but also notice as well that uh, what this passage is saying, it, it teaches very clearly that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And so the question is, in what ways are, are you failing today? Uh, if you're outside of Christ, uh, do you recognize your need of Christ and your need of the saving grace of God? If you are in Christ, do you recognize as both a saint and a sinner, do you recognize your ongoing need of the grace of God? Because as Charles Spurgeon once said, I have a great need of Christ, a great Christ for my need. Do you recognize that ongoing need of your uh, for the grace of God? And does that need manifest itself in, in gratitude, in humility, and, and in more of the fruits of the spirit being worked in your life uh in what ways if you're a man in what ways uh from this passage you need to ask yourself in what ways are you being apathetic in in leading your own home and guarding your own heart in in helping to nurture uh uh your wife in in the growth in grace and all and encourage her in in her in any ministry or or, or in her work or in, uh, at home and or otherwise uh in what ways if you have children are you are you failing to uh, model Christ um, in, in your life, in in your in your in your in your vocation, or, or do do you have uh, idols in your life that you need to repent of? Uh, we all have something to work on here, and uh, so uh, a passage like this is deeply convicting. But just one last thought: it also reminds us of the grace of God, as we see in Genesis three fifteen, that that has come to fulfillment in the person and work of Christ, who said on the cross in John 1930 it is finished well I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the reading the Bible daily uh, podcast with Dave until tomorrow may the Lord richly bless you and keep you thank you for listening to today's episode of reading the Bible daily with Dave podcast if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, 
X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.